Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray. We will, of course, be discussing all the week's security news with Adam Boileau in just a moment. And then it'll be time for this week's sponsor interview with Kelly Shortridge of Fastly. And she'll be joining us this week to talk about what modern security actually looks like. And yeah, it is typically smart stuff from Kelly, so do stick around for that. Before we get into the news, though, I have an announcement. Now, you would have heard me making the joke uh, quite often that 40% of the stories we talk about in this podcast uh, were written by Catalan Kimpanu. Uh, And yeah, he is taking a break at the moment, so the run sheet is looking a little bit anemic. Uh, But I am pleased to tell you all that Catalan is actually coming to work with us here at Risky Business. Now, I'm sure all of the listeners know the tremendous respect we have for him and uh, and the work that he does. We've followed his work uh, from when he he was at Bleeping Computer uh, and then ZDNet and then uh, more recently The Record and on the tech side of InfoSec reporting, you know, he's he's just the best I've ever seen. And uh, yeah, he'll be joining us in April to launch a risky business news service. So instead of just writing articles, uh, Catalan will be putting out a regular podcast and accompanying newsletter, uh, which will be more of a digest as opposed to him just, just writing articles. Uh, so it'll come out multiple times a week and uh, in my view, it will be absolutely absolutely essential reading uh, or essential listening if you'd prefer to listen to the podcast version. I want to say thanks uh, to the sponsors who agreed to help us spin this up and uh, they are Proofpoint, Thinkst Canary, Airlock Digital and Rumble Network Discovery. Uh, We we couldn't have made this happen without them. So Catalan is taking a well-earned break uh, but will be joining us late next month and uh, we're obviously Really, really looking forward uh, to working with him. But let's get into the news now with Adam Boileau. And mate, uh, the German government has issued a warning about Kaspersky, the dangers of using Kaspersky products. And, um, you know, you can kind of see why this might be the case given recent uh, events in Europe. Yes, they've put out a warning that said, basically, you know, don't use Kaspersky software. What I thought was interesting about this one compared to, say, some of the other places where we've seen this is they explicitly call out, um, and quoting from from them, a Russian IT manufacturer can carry out offensive operations by itself, be forced to attack target systems against its will, or be spied on without its knowledge as a victim of a cyber operation, or misused as a tool for attacks against its own customers, which... So I thought it was interesting that they that they called that out specifically, you know, because where there's been previous discussions about uh, you know supply chain stuff like this, a lot of the concerns been you know about backdoors, and we saw that with you know with Huawei, and we saw it um, like the last couple of times Kaspersky was dragged through the mud, you know, they, they were saying oh there'll be backdoors in the code or something like that, and and the response was well we have places where you know governments and other parties can come and look at the source code, but none of that really addressed you know the fact that software vendors and suppliers you know are encumbered by the whims of their host governments and seeing that called out specifically here I think is good. Well yeah and they the- say Kaspersky made a big song and dance about how they moved their servers to Switzerland and stuff like that which you know come on someone in Russia is going to be accessing those servers so it's not really a particularly meaningful move. No, exactly right. I mean, if the admins of those servers are in Russia and their families are in Russia then plenty of pressure can be applied and I think you know that's a thing that Oh, you know, much bigger than just Kaspersky, right? There's plenty of places with operations in Russia, and we'll talk about, you know, the Google thing a bit later on, where, you know, they, they can have pressure applied to them. And, 
you know, Infosec Twitter was quite quick to point out, well, you know, we're like, where's Nginx developed? And yeah. you know, where's Telegram developed? And, you know, what other Russian, you know, bits of Russian supply chain? Because that's quite a lot. Um, oh, the Telegram, the the Telegram stuff's really complicated because the founder, he already left Russia. I think, wasn't he the guy who started VK or something? And yeah, wound up leaving, yeah, he, leaving Russia because of this sort of stuff, yes, right? So, exactly. I don't know. Telegram is just such a odd one. Like, there was a whole bunch of news about Telegram. Uh, over the last couple of weeks because people in Ukraine are using it so much. And then there's people getting arm flappy because, oh, it doesn't really do much encryption unless you're doing like encrypted, uh, you know, person-to-person chat. So there's a lot of arm flapping about that and then arm flapping about the Russia connection and whatnot. But really the way I see it is it's a cross between Facebook and WhatsApp, but without the moderation. Which means it's a cesspit for all sorts of horrible yes, stuff, but yes. people can use it in circumstances like this as well. So I don't know. I don't know that I'm too worried about interference from Telegram. I'm more worried about um, uh, the lack of interference and lack of moderation. <laughs> yeah, but it is yes. interesting. Yeah, it is interesting what the Germans said about, well, you know, they could be forced to do something bad because, you know, this has always been the line from, from the Americans, right? Like you had guys like Rob Joyce saying, well, you know, ultimately, even if it's, even if it's an AV, bit of AV software, it's still a Russian rootkit. <laughs> essentially, you know, <laughs> yes, if, if the yes, people pull the wrong exactly. levers, it's like just having this conversation, it's like Rob Joyce's soul has <laughs> left his body and is appearing in front of my desk just to yeah. say in ghostly tones, I told you so. Because <laughs> really, well, it, who, who would trust it at the moment? Who would trust it? Yes. And it doesn't matter how well-intentioned the people at Kaspersky are, who would trust that software right now? Yes, and it's a very, very real problem, right? I mean, and you know, we are rapidly entering a world where we have to think about that, like where we can no longer have, you know, global bits of software that are trusted everywhere. You know, people have to start thinking about, you know, the origins of it. And, you know, when we look at where all our hardware comes from, um, you know, if we were seeing the same pattern play out, you know, if it was Taiwan instead of Ukraine, you know, we would be in a much worse place (laughs) than I think, you know, Russia is with... um, the amount of you know software and technology that we you know import from Russia, so yeesh. yeah. Well, Germany stopped short of banning Kaspersky software, and I think that's because a lot of municipal governments there actually run it, right? So um, yeah, tricky. But you know, it turns out maybe uh, not running Kaspersky products was was going to be the right thing to do. And I, look, I feel terrible saying that because I know a lot of people who work at Kaspersky yeah. and they're good people and they do good work. But yeah, ultimately this is a Russia government problem, isn't it? Because do you trust do you trust Vlad not to pull that lever? And I certainly don't. No, I mean, clearly he's willing to pull all sorts of levers that we didn't really think he was. And and I certainly echo your sentiments. You know, the, the you know we have a lot of feeling for the, the Kaspersky staff, especially the ones that are, you know, outside of Russia looking in, trying to reconcile their own sort of personal stance with, you know, the fact they also have a job and a livelihood and colleagues and, you know, lots of respect uh, for their colleagues in Russia. Like, that must, must be such a horrible situation to be in. Um, but, yeah, like... Why wouldn't Vlad use every lever that's available to him, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, look, staying with the the UK and Russia stuff. Now, we spoke about this last week, and it's finally starting to trickle out into uh, the more mainstream uh, publications. Reuters has a report up uh, written by what looks to be their entire InfoSec team, Chris Bing, Josh Shetman, Raphael Satter, and James Pearson. Um, apparently, US spy agencies are probing this SATCOM hack that happened in uh, Ukraine, where, where SATCOM terminals got bricked, and also a bunch of SATCOM terminals uh, in, neighbor, you know, around Europe uh, got bricked as part of this sort of like a looks like it was a bit of a not petia style spillover into other territories but 
you know, the Russians are pretty good at hacking stuff. I, I, I think they would have known this would happen. It may have been an intended effect. But either way, uh, more people are talking about this now. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly one of the more interesting, you know, sort of cyber war-esque stories, because we've seen so much focus on the on the information warfare side of things. But yeah, this one did stand out when we talked about it last week as being legit interesting. And when we talked last week, you know, the, you know we talked about the, obviously, denying communications in a war zone is super useful for an adversary. And, you know, this was used quite a lot in Ukraine for, you know, communications for civilian stuff and some government stuff. But we didn't really have a kind of a clear picture of, you know, what impact this had had and, and all those sorts of things. But yeah, so it's starting to, you know, turn into a you know, more interesting and more developed story as we understand more. Yeah, I mean, I've fallen down. Uh, I'm sorry to report that I've fallen down the rabbit hole of reading about the uh, uh, the Bayraktar TB2 drones, right? Uh, because they are, you know, they're the new hotness in in drone warfare. The Ukrainians are using them to take out uh, Russian tanks and whatnot. And this, believe it or not, this is actually relevant to this uh, discussion. So I'll just give people just a bit of a background on the TB2. It's a Turkish-made drone. It's about 12 metres across. It carries quite a small payload, around 100 kilos, and uses these micro-munitions that are, I think they weigh about, yeah, 22 kilos each and can take out tanks and trucks and things like that. Now, what makes the TB2 really interesting is it flies very slowly. Uh, it is quite stealthy. It's quite resistant to jamming. Uh, it can take out SAM sites beyond the range of those SAM sites. So, so there are real headache uh, to deal with. Now, in a, in a huge battle, right, I don't know how much use they're going to be uh, in, a, in a massive battle, but over time, they can just inflict um, huge losses, right, especially economic losses on an enemy. So they were used uh, to great effect by Azerbaijan against Armenia's armed forces. They racked up $1.9 billion of destroyed uh, 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 military hardware on the Armenian side, and they only lost two of these drones. Now, they cost between 2 and $5 million each. So worst case, that's like a $10 million loss to inflict $1.9 billion uh, worth of um, damage on the enemy. Now, one of the limitations of the TB2 is that it has, you need line of sight, right? So in response to this limitation, the company that makes the drones actually released, I think it was about, it was last year sometime, they released a version called the TB2S. And that is the SATCOM equipped drone. And that really extends the range. This thing can stay in the air for 27 hours, right? Now with the SATCOM module, you can fly at all sorts of places. Where it gets interesting though, is that these things are part of those, you know, we've been hearing about these integrated uh, smart defense platforms for a long time. These are actually a good example of that, of what that looks like in reality. So, you know, ground systems can send targeting information to those drones. Those drones can send targeting information to ground systems, you know. So, so you, you do actually have all of these network devices on the ground uh, and I'm guessing they're going to speak IP, right? Now, whether or not they're using some sort of uh, uh, reserved military bit of a, of a combined military and civilian satellite, I don't know. But what I'm guessing is when you start seeing SATCOM stuff going dark in Ukraine, as an invasion begins, it's not just about taking out voice comms. Yeah, and that's a really, really interesting wrinkle to add to this conversation, right? Because when we talked last week, I was, I was only thinking about, you know, voice comms, IP, you know, that kind of thing, you know, maybe video streams at best. Um, but yeah, the idea that that you know, may have also been being used for command and control for drones or for other military hardware it starts to make a whole bunch more sense. And I don't think we know that specifically the, these drones would be using, you know, the Viasat, Utilsat 
Well, service, apparently the or... Ukrainian military were a customer. So, but I'm just not sure because I think, you know, when I've been going through all of the TB2 stuff, it looks like they use a satellite called Turksat. Like, no no surprises there. But I'm not sure. Maybe the ground systems were on Viasat. Again, I don't know, right? Because a lot of this stuff, it's not like you can just Google and say, hey, which satellite do these deadly drones use? You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, well, it turns out you can't, you can find a bit of information, but it's a little bit difficult to know exactly what the Ukrainians were doing. Mm. But I just do find it interesting that these things, they're going to be talking IP probably over some sort of very expensive private IP satellite network delivered by God knows who but I mean, you know, hope so. <laughs> but you never know, right? You never know. Right? You never know. Um, but I suspect, I suspect that was, you know, possibly a motivating factor too. It's interesting too that the Ukrainians started using TB2s in Donbass about October last year, which, um, you know, I can't imagine pleased the Russians uh, too much. So I, I just find, you know, and it's really weird where you got this bit of military hardware that's got a fan base because you know people are into these things right it's crazy you can buy t-shirts and stuff. there's the Bayraktar song have you heard the Bayraktar song I, I have not heard that uh, I'm going to link to it in this week's show notes there's a Ukrainian war song all about the Bayraktar Bayraktar but I just do think it's very interesting when we're looking at these these networked you know lethal systems that to you and me are going to look a lot like just normal computers with IP stacks. Yeah, it's just an IoT system that happens to be flying and have missiles attached to it. Yeah. What could go wrong? <laughs> what a world. What a world. What a yeah. World. But yeah, yes. and again, you know, I, I couldn't for the life of me find it. You remember though a few months ago we spoke about, uh, I think it was NSA, it was definitely US government putting out warnings about, um, you know, how to better secure your satellite ground stations. That's true, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I remember that, yes. So I think I think I hope in the fullness of time we understand more about what happened here. But it's difficult. Yeah. The, some of the, the, the reporting's been kind of absent. We don't even know, you know, which models of, of satcom modems were affected. Yes. Like how yeah. were they affected? Like there's so much of this stuff that we should know, even on the civilian side, that we don't. But anyway, the rest of the media's onto it now, so that's good. We should know some more. Now, look, uh, another interesting story that's spinning out of Russia at the moment. And I've got a bit of an issue with the way it's being reported by a bunch of people. But it's like, oh my God, Russia's, Russia's spinning up its own certificate authority so it can spy on everyone and it's part of the oppression. Um, I mean, sure, Russia is spinning up a CA and that's going to be bad news if uh, enough people use it because that is something that the Russian state will use to its advantage in, in, in doing all sorts of horrible surveillance and whatnot. But Russia also doesn't have a choice because of the sanctions. Websites in Russia can no longer renew certs and even Let's Encrypt won't allow government, Russian government or government adjacent websites to renew their certificates. So what other choice do they have but to start their own CA? Yes, and this is the thing I think, you know, they've been working on for a long time, like this sort of project to isolate, to be able to, if they needed to, isolate Russia from the Western internet, you know, things like DNS and, and CA stuff. They've been working on it for a while. So you're very right. Like, what choice do they have if they can't renew their certs and everything's going to break? And the fact that it then enables much more effective, you know, sort of panopticons for everybody's yeah. Russian stuff, kind of probably a happy you know, side effect for well, them. Well, that's the but. thing. And I'm just wondering if there should be some sort of carve out. Because you remember we spoke a couple of weeks back about, you know, this idea that, oh, uh, you know, Russia shouldn't get security patches anymore. And we both said, well, that's a pretty bad idea. I sort of feel like blocking the issuance of valid CA, you know, valid certs to Russia is a similarly terrible idea. And I know that these, you know, I know a carve out would probably be a pain in the ass to actually um, implement, but I mean, you'd be doing the Russian people a favour. 
Yes, and that's the the concern here as well, that, that it's just going to make it even harder for Russians to have independent access to the rest of the network, you know, much like if we did the same for DNS, you know, when we, we were talking a couple of what, last week about throwing the .ru uh, top-level domain out or something like that. I mean, the, the same kind of things apply. It's just going to further isolate them. And, you know, much as it, is painful to think about, you know, having to go and, and support them. Like, probably selling them certificates. I mean, I don't know whether they want to buy them anymore either, right? Because now they're going to be afraid that the West are backdooring them. I just can't see the harm in allowing certificates into Russia because it at least at least it tilts the calculation back towards, um, you know, surveillance resistance, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of practical things we could do, like, I mean, obviously Russia's going to go ahead with this plan regardless, uh, and people, as you say, will end up with the cert on their box. One of the problems we have with using certificate root certificates is the, you know, it's very difficult for an end user to constrain what a particular CA can authorize. And the mechanisms exist to do that, right? You can build constrained root certificates that can only sign, you know, domains that end in .ru, but validating those and providing mechanisms for people to configure that validation is pretty fit. Like I've tried to do it before with OpenSSL, it's a real pain. Uh, mm. So we could improve the mechanisms by which that happens and make sure that there is an easy way for consumers to say, this certificate is only allowed to sign a subset of domains and then ship browsers with that kind of configuration available. No, that would be a... I think we're falling into the trap here of thinking about this from a too sort of Western-centric uh, standpoint because the crackdown in Russia is just so severe. I don't know yes, if you saw it. There was a bit true. of viral video going around of um, there was a woman getting um, uh, getting arrested, you know, for standing there holding a tiny little sign. I think it said "No War" or something, uh, and was being interviewed and you know got frog marched away. And then a woman came up to actually speak in support of the invasion to this this uh, interviewer saying, well, are you just interviewing protesters or do you want to hear from people who support the war as well? And he said, well, no, we're talking to everyone. As soon as she started talking, they came and arrested her too. So, (laughs) you know, as much as we can talk about, oh, you know, maybe it would be great if we had some sort of technical solution to this problem. Um, Yeah, I don't know how far it's going to get us, to be honest. Yeah, no, you are sadly probably right. I mean, us nerds always want to solve it with software and some things are just not software problems. Yeah. 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 Now, look... um, this is something that we've touched on in the last couple over the last couple of weeks, but this idea that cybercrime dynamics are changing uh, in Russia and Ukraine because of this war. But you know, they're also changing because of the sanctions and because of increasing uh, crypto regulation. And this is something that uh, Accenture has published a report on. Uh, CyberScoop's got a write up here as well. But I know uh, Tom Uran, our newsletter writer, he's been doing a lot of research on this, and um, I, I, he's he's got some interesting thoughts. So I asked him to um, uh, provide us with some audio explaining, you know, his approach to analysing this and how he thinks it's all going to shake out. And uh, I'm going to play that for everyone just now. So there seems to be two big forces at play here. One is the fact that the war is causing polarisation amongst people who work in ransomware crews. So there's Ukrainians, there's Russians, and they've previously worked well together. But when your homeland is being shelled, your friends and family are being killed, your whole world's being disrupted, trying to paper over that with just you know, anodyne statements about a ransomware group being apolitical is simply just not cutting the mustard. So there's good evidence that ransomware crews are getting disrupted by the polarisation. So they're not working as well together. And there's been, to some degree, it seems like there's been a breakdown in their processes. A second 
reason for optimism is that the financial sanctions that have been placed on Russia will make it harder for these groups to get paid. So, you know, just at a start, companies are going to be more reluctant to pay because they'll be worried that they're going to get, you know, accidentally break sanctions. In the cryptocurrency space, Coinbase has disabled, I think, 25,000 accounts. So that's all going to make it harder. Now, on the pessimistic side, it seems like if you're a Russian ransomware guy or gal and you've got the opportunity for an attack, you, I think you'll just be less discriminating. You, you, you may well figure out that you're not going to get paid. Your country is involved in a war and how else are you going to express yourself other than, you know, cause some mayhem. So I think there'd be a long-term and a short-term dynamic. In the short-term, I could possibly see things getting worse. Those, those crews have nothing to lose. Let's just deploy everywhere and be as destructive as possible. You know, if we don't get paid, we probably weren't going to get paid anyway. In the longer term, I think that, you know, most of these things are actually bad for the industry as a whole. It'll make it harder to form large groups Part of the reason these groups are effective is because they get a lot of people who work pretty effectively together and that gives them a lot of capability. It's not just, you know, the single ransomware hacker sitting alone in their bedroom. It's an organisation that can get a lot of things done. So in the short term, pessimistic. In the long term, there's perhaps reason for hope. Now, I just found that really interesting because essentially what we're talking about is they're having their works gummed up the same as every other Russian organisation, basically, same as every other Russian business. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, there's just a whole bunch of extra friction and extra grief and more politics, you know, both office and external, uh, that's going to make their lives a bit more difficult. And yeah, I mean, that's that's got to slow things down. Although I, you know, his point about them having even less to lose and... I know, probably much less worry about being, you know, arrested or something. You know, I'm sure the police are busy doing other stuff and, you know, it's not going to be any cooperation with Western law enforcement. So, you know, maybe we'll see less but worse, you know, less but more severe. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, look, it's hard to know. But, I mean, I think his point too is that they're all hopped up on nationalist fervour at this <laughs> yes. point, which is going to yeah. drive the wedge uh, with the Ukrainian members. Uh, you know, it, it's going to blow them further apart, right? But it's also going to make them do stuff that's a, that's a bit nuts. And then you start questioning well what's the role of um, some of these cyber agencies like cyber command if this starts really escalating and is not state directed but motivated by you know nationalistic sentiment like at what point does the government step in and i mean i just think for the first time we're going to see some um you know some interesting uh dynamics at play here that aren't just about money Yes, yeah, I think you're very right. Like it has, you know, we don't necessarily know how it's changed the landscape, but it does feel like this is a thing that's going to cause some change. I and mean, it's going to be a wild ride, you know. We, you know, we'd kind of got used to the sort of the workaday ransomware process. You know, every week we'd have 400 stories talk about it on the news about <laughs> yeah. so and so getting ransomware. Now it's all gone back to being crazy, turn new and exciting. So. I mean, I guess that's good for us. Hooray right? for the pundits, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, meanwhile, it's funny that you mentioned the um, you know Russia-US uh, cooperation there because uh, the uh, Russia's deputy foreign minister is like <laughs> he's on record this week saying, well, he hopes that uh, Russian-US dialogue on cybersecurity will be resumed. Uh, <laughs> you know, because it can bring tangible results like the disruption of Reval. Some people are interpreting that as like him saying that it's um, you know that it's shut down and uh, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think it's just really there are some bigger fish to at the moment so maybe throw the ransomware stuff uh on the back burner while your diplomatic efforts are uh spent elsewhere 
but yeah, we got some supporting stories uh, linked to in uh, this week's show notes, including one from CyberScoop uh, talking about FinCEN warning people that uh, yeah, ransomware proceeds could be captured by um, uh, sanctions regimes uh, and whatnot. There's another interesting story there from uh, NBC, uh, which is looking at how the US is really getting serious about crypto regulation, and they're probably going to start producing their own stablecoin. And like, you know, this has been the way all of this is heading for a long time, which is uh, central banks just saying. Oh, cool idea. But we'll take that. Thank you very much. (laughs) Honestly, probably not like the worst outcome. (laughs) Well, yeah. Uh, Funnily enough, central Uh, banks issuing currency. What a crazy idea. Um, You know, and I think it's cool that like a lot of these coin issuers, like these crypto coin people like don't realize, but they've just, you know, they're basically being cosplaying as um, central banks without even realizing (laughs) it. And anyway, this is not a crypto podcast. So whatever. Um, Look, bit of a shit show over at Hacker One uh, this week, and you know I'm not I'm not going to be too critical of them because this is a very fluid situation. But they really mishandled their communications around what was happening with bug bounty payments to researchers based in Ukraine. So obviously the the the, the payments to Russia are frozen. Occupied territories in Donbass are also sanctioned, right? So they can't pass on payments uh, to to researchers there. And it's natural to assume that as other areas might get annexed or occupied, they might actually be added to sanctions lists as well. So this for 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 organizations like BugCrowd, Hacker One, it's you know, this is just a really complicated thing. HackerOne did drop the ball on the communication side though, because they published a blog post in a tweet saying they were gonna give this money. Uh, to charities and then later they backtracked and said no no we're giving our own money to charities but we're allowing some researchers to choose if they want to send that money to a charity of their choice or something like that and then they they wound up announcing a freeze on payments to Ukrainian researchers and then saying oh no only in Donbass like it's just just a real mess but it looks like where they've landed is actually somewhere uh, kind of sensible which is they're just you know keeping the money for researchers based in Ukraine and they're going to they're going to work on sorting that out as they can but I did have a chat uh, briefly with uh, Casey at uh, at Bug Crowd and he said you know this this stuff is hard and complicated and very fluid at the moment Yes, I can imagine this must be quite a complicated situation for them to resolve and not one that you can do easily because as you say it's it's changing all the time and you know operating a you know gig economy in a place like that, you know, we don't necessarily understand what's going on on the ground, or maybe you just maybe they don't even have great information, you know, beyond this person is from Ukraine. Like maybe they don't know that they live in Donbass or wherever else. I imagine it's just a, yeah, a real nasty set of you know thorny problems. But yeah, they probably could have done this a little bit better. And I, I you know, I imagine it must have been distressing for some of the people who have a bunch of money sitting in their accounts that they were, were relying on in this situation. Yeah, there's a bunch of you know pissed off hackers on Twitter saying, "What the hell? You're just stealing my money? Like, what are you? What?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's well. I mean, if you pissed off a whole bunch of hackers, then maybe you can have a bad time too. But um, yeah, it just I'm sh- that they need to do this kind of thing better, I suppose. Yeah, we got a story here from Washington Post too about how in September, and we reported on this at the time that uh, Apple and Google removed uh, Alexei Navalny's app from the Russian App Store. And well, you know, of course, uh, this was this was going to happen. If you operate in a in an autocracy, you're going to have to do stuff like this. And uh, yeah, we just got some more detail uh, via the Washington Post where they've said that uh, you know the FSB rocked up to their offices and said people were going to start going to prison if they didn't do it, which is much as we guessed at the time 
Yes, like that's the kind of the sort of thing that you would expect in, in an autocracy. And, you know, I feel bad for the employees of, you know, of Google and Apple and other, you know, international companies that have offices there. But yeah, I mean, people who work for multinationals in an autocracy are kind of human shields, right? They're kind of hostages. Yeah, tech and hostages. That's what the, that's the term, right? I mean, Tom, Tom Uren did some really good work around this at the time. And he's just like, <laughs> do you do you do you, hey tech tech people do you actually think that you just can ignore governments like is that what you think you know I mean, like that was the vibe that was coming out of his reporting yeah, it was really good yeah yeah I, mean, I think they kind of do <laughs> yeah but, but that's his point that's nuts yes, like it's yeah. just it's not how it works particularly in an autocracy like yes. i feel like we let him get away with too much in the democracies <laughs> oh dear dear oh dear now, look, there's there's some other stuff uh, happening in the Russia-Ukraine thing. And, you know, we, we're going to move on from it because otherwise we're just going to be talking about it all day. But there's the usual stuff. Um, you know, there's some wiper attacks going on. Uh, one of them, I think ESET has found like a third new type of wiper. Uh, so that's been happening. There's been some infrastructure challenges too as stuff gets bombed, stuff gets dosed. Um Distributed Denial of Secrets has released 800 gig of data from the Russian uh, uh, censor, the Russian government body responsible for censorship. So that'll be uh, interesting to uh, researchers, I'm guessing. Uh, but look, you know, it's not just uh, Russia and Ukraine uh, being cybered. Um, Israel, uh, th- this is an interesting one, actually. So we got the story here from CyberScoop, where it looks like a fairly typical DDoS campaign took down some Israeli uh, government websites for a short period of time. Why this is interesting is because it made such a big splash online and you had Israel like raising its, you know, internet threat level to status orange or whatever. Like I I don't actually know what their official status was, but this was treated as a very big deal when really it was a looked to be a fairly run of the mill DDoS. Yeah, it was interesting because I mean, there were sources in the government there saying like this is, you know, that it was a nation state behind it and it was the largest cyber attack in the history of the country. But yeah, from the outside, in terms of the amount of outages and things that appeared to cause it, didn't seem super unusual. Yeah, there are a couple uh, so, of really sort of cheesed journalists uh, in, in my timeline sort of saying, well, that feeling when it's announced as the biggest cyber attack in history and it's like a couple of government websites got <laughs> knocked down for a bit in a DDoS, come on. Yeah, and it's kind of hard to tell whether like there's some aspect to it that we don't know, whether there was some pointer that said, hey, this was Iran or whatever, and that they are, you know, not explaining all those details, but they have reasons to say, you know, to be more concerned than average about it, or whether it's just, you know, the A team is busy doing other stuff in Ukraine and the B team that took this call, you know, responded to this, just got a little bit excited and... You know, it actually wasn't particularly, you know, uh, unusual or different than usual. So it's kind of hard to tell. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you, you saw the reaction, right? Like you would have seen yeah, yes, yeah, so it was all, yeah. all lit up in you know lots of you know articles and and things that yeah, it, it seemed to get more coverage than you would expect for a regular common garden DDoS. You know, even one targeting government, you know, government domains and web services and things. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe some more details will come out and maybe we'll understand why they were all head up about it, but you know, just look like regular DDoS from the outside. Now it's time to talk about Lapsus. And uh, we have spoken about this crew before. Now this is a hack and leak 
uh, a data ransom extortion, you know, type of uh, type of outfit. They don't do ransomware. They'll steal your data and say, "Hey, give us money, or we're going to release it." These were the ones who got their VM owned by Nvidia because <laughs> yes. they had to enroll in the in the MDM. In the MDM. Yeah. Um, really, there was a really interesting follow up to that that we didn't actually have time to discuss. I think it was like last week or the week before. But uh, funnily enough, their demand from Nvidia isn't. They don't want money from Nvidia. They want uh, Nvidia in response to people using Nvidia gear to mine cryptocurrencies, they actually introduced some measures into their products that essentially throttles cryptocurrency mining and makes it uneconomical to do with their hardware. And they did this because, you know, they want to be selling their GPUs to gamers, uh, not giant cryptocurrency farms located near hydropower in China, right? Like that's not really uh, uh, what they what they intended their stuff to be used for. So Lapsus is saying, you know, remove these restrictions or we're going to release uh, all of your source code and stuff. So it's this weird bit of, yeah, cryptocurrency advocacy uh, activism. I don't know even what you call it. Um, but Lily Hay Newman over at Wired has written a feature about Lapsus and it's it's actually really good reading. Yeah, it is. It's really interesting. Um, I mean, when we saw those NVIDIA demands, I thought like this sounds like a weird mix between, you know, cryptocurrency stuff and just like angry nerds that the Linux drivers aren't very oh, good. The, and the then... angry nerd is so, the angry nerdness of this crew is so strong and that really comes out through uh, Lily's work here. Yeah, yeah, it does. And so I, I didn't realise kind of how much other stuff they had also, you know, sort of pulled this sort of, I mean, like chaotic evil uh, sort of, you know, crimes. Uh, and so, yeah, it was a good, it's a really good piece to kind of give you a bit of context. Uh, and, you know, because they've been apparently kicking around for a while doing stuff in, you know, uh, some of the Portuguese speaking bits of the world in Portugal and in Brazil and um, around the place in, in uh, South America. But yeah, NVIDIA and Samsung and, you know, a bunch of other stuff that I hadn't really, you know, tied together in my head as being them. But yeah, it... it in some ways, and, and Lily points it out in the story, like it has some kind of like lull sex sort of energy in a way. Um, yeah, I mean, there's almost a part of you that's like, you're reading about him just going, <laughs> you know, and like, hang on, no, they're doing terrible things. But there's a part of you that you just, and, it, and it's exactly what, that was the thing I couldn't put my finger on it, which is what is intriguing about these guys is that, uh, is that it, it's the chaotic evil thing. They are absolutely a chaotic evil uh, uh, outfit and it's been a while since we've seen one. Yes, we haven't had one for a bit. Uh, and I mean, you know, Lulzsec and some of the sort of classic anonymous shenanigans and, you know, some of the but old they were just But they were just chaotic hilarious. Uh, they, less, yeah. than, less than chaotic yeah. evil. Thanks to Yeah, I mean, Lulzsec were kind of like chaotic neutral, I suppose. But, um, <laughs> maybe even chaotic good on places. And yeah, I mean, I, I do feel bad for NVIDIA in a way because like, what do you, how do you explain to like Corp Comms or Corp Legal <laughs> what Angry Nerd is like and why they, you know, are threatening to, you know, release the source code to NVIDIA's DLSS thing for doing like, you know, machine learning based upscaling and stuff like that, that they can't release because it's got to be encumbered with all sorts of, you know, stuff from third parties and whatever else. And just looking at it and going like, what are these nerds? Like, what are the, why are they up in our, in our, in our shit? <laughs> Asking for things that we just can't, you know, like money we could pay, but you know, we can't hand out the, you know, source code to our, you know, driver gubbins or whatever. Like, I, yeah, I feel bad for poor NVIDIA legal. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's it's one of those what a world uh, stories. Yeah, it reminds know. me too, like 20 years ago, believe it or not, 20 Oof. years ago, uh, a researcher pal of ours, actually, Adam, uh, put me in touch with someone who had a O-Day for the Xbox uh, at the time. And they were demanding through me as a reporter 
uh, they were demanding that Microsoft release a Linux bootloader for the Xbox that they were going to drop this O-Day publicly. And, of course, in the end, Microsoft just ignored them and they dropped their O-Day and it got patched and that was kind of the end of it. But it did result in my work being used to, as the basis for a Penny Arcade uh, uh, cartoon, which was a bit of a career highlight for me. Yeah, um, achievement there. Achievement, <laughs> achievement unlocked. Yeah. Uh, I'll see if I can dig it up and put it in this week's show notes. It's yeah, going it's back a while. Uh, what do we got? We got, um, yes, this uh, 22-year-old Ukrainian... Uh, who apparently was behind the Kaseya hack, has been extradited to the United States. Uh, that's Yaroslav Vazinski, and he was arrested at uh, a Polish border crossing in September last year. Uh, so, yeah, uh, that's not going to be a fun time for him. Uh, we've also seen this uh, networker affiliate who was arrested in Canada, and that guy has been busy, okay? So, I don't know, like, they've charged him with a whole bunch of stuff. Um, they've seized 28 million bucks, but... I suspect that what is on that charge sheet is the tip of the iceberg with that guy. But, you know, it's interesting that we got two criminals, one Canadian, one Ukrainian, both being extradited to the US, and they're going to do real time. Yeah, I think so, especially the Netwalker guy, because, I mean, the amount of money they were talking about, like the number of Bitcoins that they seized, they think he said, what, he'd gone through something like more than 2,000 Bitcoin worth of stuff, of which, you know, obviously he kept his cut, which was about 1,000-ish Bitcoin. Like, that's not small change. And as mm. you say, like, there's going to be a bunch of other stuff there. So I think he, that guy's really going to see um, the book thrown at him pretty hard, because, like, you know, they, they want to send a message to people that you are eventually going to pay your dues for this kind of stuff, you know, wherever you are. So, yeah, I, th I think he's in for a rough time. I wonder if some of the ransomware crews in Russia are worried about the safety of Putin's regime. You know, because there is a lot of talk right now, and I think a lot of it's, uh, what do they call it, wish casting, um, <laughs> that, uh, that Putin could be in a bit of trouble. But you would imagine if some, you know, look, Russia has managed to recreate the system three times, the same system, you know, uh, autocracy under a Tsar, autocracy under a communist leader, autocracy under Putin. So, you know, the chance of some miraculous reformer coming and, and just, you know, making everything completely different, I, th I think those odds are pretty slim. But you'd have to think that'd be factoring in to some of the risk calculations for some of these criminals, which is, say Putin gets rolled, some reformer comes in and starts cozying up to the FBI as a, as a way to kind of normalise relations with the West and get some of these sanctions dropped. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if I was a Russian ransomware criminal, I would have that on my risk register. You know? Yeah. Like, impact real high, likelihood probably low, but... Probably you know, low, but yeah. But still, high times probably low is still, hmm, yeah. you know, a little concerning. Just a thought. Just a mm -hmm. thought. Uh, last week we spoke about that Linux bug. I'm not saying the name. I'm just not going to say it. Uh, but this is the uh, Linux vulnerability that affected recent kernels. You gave us a rundown on that and you predicted that it would be used uh, to exploit uh, Android handsets. And uh, yeah, lo and behold, that's what's happened. Yes, we've seen some uh, researchers popping up with videos of them uh, gaining root shells on some pretty modern Android devices. Obviously, the kernel involved is pretty recent, so it is you know uh, not all widespread on old Android devices, but like modern um, Pixel, Google Pixel phones and stuff um, shelled. Actually, the guy who uh, dropped this you know, video of this particular one uh, also had some man of SE Linux bypass that he you know is not disclosing the details of uh, that he leveraged in this to gain an unconstrained root shell. So that's nice, um, but yeah. It's certainly a very real bug. I know a bunch of people who've been using it uh, around the place for all sorts of things, not just mobile phones. So, yeah, <laughs> it's a real bug. Everybody's having a good time. Mm -hmm. Now, this one, uh, actually, Brian Krebs, when we when we did the uh, show with Brian last week, he kind of uh, mentioned this one to us, but it hadn't really uh, broken yet. I think it broke that, that day. Uh, but, you know, if you like 
DDoS ampl- amplification. Uh, boy, do we have some news for you. <laughs> yes, so this is a, a piece of VoIP equipment, some like phone, you know, internet telephony equipment used by businesses. Uh, and it turns out that these devices have some manner of like debug function or like a testing function that you can use to check like the bandwidth around your network to make sure, you know, to understand why your voice calls are dropping or why things aren't working exactly. Anyway, you can tr- apparently trigger this test functionality uh, from the outside. Uh, so if there's a particular UDP port that happens to be you know, used to set this up, if you've exposed out the internet, uh, then you can basically turn on this flooding like DOS as a service function that's built in and hmm. point it to wherever you like. And then you send one packet and it sends you know, configured correctly like 90 gig of traffic to the target for the price of one packet sent by the attacker. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much the world record for traffic amplification factor, I think, amongst denial of service tools. And there's a couple of thousand of these on the internet uh, that I suspect are probably all going to be filling, you know, outbound line rate with packets uh, now that this is well. But I mean, that's the, that's the good news here, right? Is something like this that's this easy and this, you know, I mean, you're talking about an amp factor of 4 billion, right? <laughs> yes. So anything that's that good, I mean, those boxes are all sitting there maxing out line rate and people have already called their IT support people to figure it out and they you know you'd think this it's got a short window this one yes this is one of these you know flame that burns twice as bright sorts of situations except now it's four billion times as bright so yeah i don't think it'll last long and people will get the message but it's pretty funny uh and certainly if i was a you know into ddosing I would be applying the Brett Moore same bug different app philosophy and going and looking at every other piece of VoIP or video equipment and trying to find similar things elsewhere because like they can't be the only vendor that's got some kind of you know like line testing facility built in uh, and off you go. Yeah, it's funny. You just reminded me of a story about uh, yeah a friend of mine who was connecting to a lot of insecure video conf tech and um, I shouldn't tell this story. <laughs> <laughs> Now we're going to close out the week's news, Adam, with a couple of heads ups. Uh, apparently, the SEC is working on its guidance, uh, its cybersecurity risk management uh, disclosure rules for publicly traded companies. So this is something that is, uh, you know, in the works at the moment. But that bill that we've been tracking uh, for several months now. Uh, the Strengthening America Cybersecurity Act. This is the one that would require organizations to report to the government uh, within 72 hours if they've been breached and within 24 hours if they've made a ransomware payment. Um, that uh, that law has passed. So that's actually done. And it looks like, uh, the reason I mentioned the SEC thing is it looks like there'll be additional guidance coming down from, um, from the SEC as well. So, you know, gone are the days where you just have to report PII loss. These days, if you get you know, if you have a major incident or you pay a ransom, you're going to have to report it. I think this is a good thing. Yeah, I also think this is, is definitely a good thing. And seeing the SEC start to move to mirror this for publicly traded companies is also going to be just a, a good thing, I think. You know, because the more data we have, all the incentives line up against keeping this stuff, you know, swept under the rug and not talking about it. If we have to disclose publicly, then that's going to help, um, you know, kind of, push the state of things forward and the SEC's um, proposed rules are also going to have like require you to disclose kind of like how security responsibilities are managed by the board and by leadership and so on and so forth so you know will improve visibility make people think about what they're doing uh, and that's only going to be good uh, I think for everybody 
it's going to inform policy as well, yes. right? Right now, they don't have a lot of visibility into uh, what's actually going on, uh, you know, how many companies are actually paying ransoms, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we get some visibility through companies like Chainalysis and whatever, but mandating reporting of this stuff, uh, yeah, I don't think it's going to hurt. And why disclose it if you don't have to is often the attitude taken by uh, by yes. companies on this yeah, sort of stuff. And so. Yeah, and if you make it a requirement, well, you know, they just deal with it at that point and everyone else has to do it so it doesn't put them at a disadvantage. So yes, happy to see that one pass. But Adam, that is actually it for this week's news. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us, man. It's been fun as always and we'll do it all again next week. Yeah, cheers, Pat. Talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. Big thanks to him for that. Uh, just so you all know, I have published another product demo this week, and you can find it in this week's show notes. It's a breakdown of Proofpoint's People Nexus Risk Explorer, uh, which is free to enterprise customers of Proofpoint. Uh, and yeah, please do subscribe to our YouTube product demo channel. Uh, feedback on these demos so far has been very good, but why don't you go have a look and uh, yeah, let us know what you think. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Fastly's Kelly Shortridge. Kelly is the senior principal product technologist at Fastly and uh, yeah, she's very well known in the security discipline. She's worked everywhere from BAE Systems to Security Scorecard and Capsulate and uh, she's joining us today to help us define what modern security actually looks like. Now, I know this might come as a shock to you all, but there are some people in InfoSec uh, who have some rusted on misconceptions about what a secure environment actually looks like. They don't exactly move with the times. And this is shocking information, I know. But as you'll hear, Kelly says there are others who are moving with the times and, uh, you know, they're actually able to kick some goals by, by staying current. And uh, here's, here's Kelly Shortridge. A key point of modern security is that you're not operating in a silo. And that also doesn't mean just like hoarding knowledge and, you know, Sending down decrees from an ivory tower, it also means you're borrowing lessons from other domains. So in particular, you're adopting some of the amazing innovation on the engineering side, whether that's automation, um, looking at design principles like repeatability and maintainability, adopting tools like infrastructure as code to get more declarative about your security policies. It's really thinking about like how do we um, how do we do our security work in a way that isn't painful for ideally everyone involved. Um, it's this very similar shift that we saw in a lot of like DevOps work, like this concept of toil, right? There's a lot of manual tedious work no one really wants to do. How can we make it better? And that's, I think, a big part of how to make uh, modern security happen is thinking about like, okay, like where are we creating problems where like users would probably be willing to pay in a lot of cases, like actual money to avoid having to use a VPN, like their corporate VPN. How do we create access patterns that are actually flexible enough for their work cases um, without, you know, just totally yellowing and having zero access on every, anything? So really, it's starting to look at these more from engineering problems. Like I come from a product background, think about like, what are these your problems? How do you balance that with your organizational goals? And then figuring out like, what's the right solution that balances the various priorities? Um, so again, that can that can look in so many different ways in actual implementation. But I think it really comes down to that, like, you have to think about the user personas, what are their problems and like, what are the ultimate outcomes you're trying to achieve rather than again, either outputs or just like make things secure, which is way too nebulous. It's funny that you picked VPNs as an example there, because that was the curveball of 2020, right? Which was, there's a pandemic, everybody go back to the VPNs. And it's like, you know, here's, here's everyone in security sitting there going, no, you know, cause we're, we're trying to really, you know, migrate to these, um, you know, more modern approaches to accessing company resources, but 
ultimately, like this is something that that had to happen because it had to happen quickly. And in the in the years since, I mean, I don't know that we've seen a tremendous march away uh, from VPN use. You know, there's a lot of there's been identity aware proxies and whatever they were around before COVID, but it doesn't seem like the adoption has been quite. Uh, what we hope for. Do you expect, as the pandemic is sort of winding down, touch wood, um, do you expect that that might change now that people are going to get a chance to actually, you know, spend time in their data centers and, and, and whatnot? Do you think we could see people start to to try to, you know, pick VPNs out of their orgs now? I certainly hope so. I think it depends where in kind of the problems that you look, right? Like there's the problem of like, how do you get engineers access, like you said, to like servers or other kind of like development resources. Then there's the problem, you know, just like connecting, you know, the salespeople to whatever documents they need or like customer assets they need. Um, and I think those really do involve different workflows because developers operate very differently, have very different expectations than kind of other sorts of end users. Um, I think there's really never a good time to kind of pivot into, I guess, more modern security. And I think that's, I, I really just like when people are like, well, when's the right time to do it? It's like, well, there's never going to be a right time. There are always going to be like tons of things going on. There's never a true lull. So I, I at least hope maybe some people will capitalize on things being a little calmer and maybe a bit more balanced, you know, the hybrid work thing to start taking advantage of that and starting to migrate. But I, I would actually push back in my experience. There's actually a lot of resistance, I would say, in security. There, there's almost one group in the security scene that is like, yes, like, let's get rid of VPNs. They're more attack service than anything else. There's another group, though, that's like, well, you know, our trusted research analyst or, you know, industry program says that VPNs are good. That's what I've known, you know, my 10 year career. And so we need to stick to them. Um, and Give I me think, their names, Kelly. Give me their names. I, I, yeah, <laughs> Start a I, list. I wish I could. I wish I could. Uh, instead, I, I try to win hearts and minds instead rather than yeah. shaving. Um, no, but no, I fair think, enough. And I'm sorry, this was a bit of a bump steer because you're trying to talk about these, this, you know, sort of more all-encompassing topic of modern security. And, um, you know, you just hit one of my trigger words, which is I was like, VPNs, <laughs> basically. Yeah, but I think it's it's a good macro point, which is there's never really a good time to, like, transition things, right? I, I certainly opt for approach that's more, um, like, choose choose something that seems to be kind of like the easiest quick win and start building there. Like a lot of this is about building muscle memory. Like don't try to migrate to modern security all at once, right? Maybe it's easier from a cultural perspective to start just having blameless postmortems that doesn't really involve technology. Maybe for some organizations, it is easier to start implementing like automated deployments that have, you know, like some um, like required, let's say like uh, security policies that are baked in and that engineering teams can like self-serve or whatever else like it, it really depends on the organization what the quick win will be but i think the point is like there's never going to be a good time you need to just pick like when um like which project really is the best place for you to start i think now earlier you were talking about uh you know infrastructure as code you know do you mean sort of like these these serverless platforms or you know can you what what do you actually mean by that and also like what do you make of some of these issues that the serverless platforms are having because it seems like they've got a pretty decent attack surface um, themselves. I mean, so uh, to be clear, when I say infrastructure as code, I mean like um, the ability to write kind of like declarative policies or like properties of infrastructure, not serverless platforms. They they obviously work a bit together, but I mean more like um, like the terraforms of the world okay. um, where you can like define certain properties and like, um, for instance, like you can um, declare like IAM policies and kind of create like a service mesh like functionality through infrastructure as code. There's actually 
Um, I think I've given a few talks where I talk about like the huge list of things that infrastructure as code can help with security. Really, you can think of it as just like treating security policies or transforming them into like code that can be enforced automatically rather than having to do like manually in a bunch of different places, just as things are deployed, like they have certain properties. Um, I do think with serverless, I personally think some of the kind of threat assessments are a little overblown because realistically with the sandbox models, like um, I'm especially obviously close to like Fastly's platform, but like we still haven't really seen any in the wild like container escapes, let alone something that's breaking out of like generally you have to break out of two sandboxes with most of the serverless implementations. I think it's very, the way you're going to shoot yourself in the foot is on IAM policies. That's I think the long and short of it. Um, I think also when we talk about horror stories, horror stories relative to what, right? The status quo of monoliths and manual deployments, especially yeah. in the case if you're comparing manual deploys versus IAC, like this is kind of the Daniel answer. I, this is kind of the answer I was fishing for. Basically, is like yeah. you know, as compared to what Active Directory on prem, you know, like there are problems with everything, right? Yeah. And I think one thing I try to stress is like our modern world relies on automation, from traffic control to traffic lights to financial markets. Like if if your beef is with automation, like you need to go live in a hut somewhere. Like at a certain point, it is true that essentially systems will scale beyond point that you can't manage them without automation but that isn't necessarily a bad thing right it's all about trade-offs and so i think i think it's not totally surprising that security people sometimes freak out about this because they did it with the cloud as well and now everybody pretends like they didn't freak out about the cloud but i was there they definitely did oh it was really like, funny i think it was it was out. it was funny because there was like this early freak out right and even policies saying you can't store you know uh, department or company assets you know off-site right like that was the freak out but I feel like the bulk of the professionals kind of moved away from that pretty quick you know what I mean but there was like this rump that just you know die hard anti-cloud I still think it took two years or too many years too many and I think that's actually getting back to modern security that's Part of what I think started to kind of poison the relationship with, between security engineering, because when the security team is claiming, no, we can secure things better than AWS, it's just very hard to maintain that credibility, right? And so now when they're like, no, like, you know, we can't trust containers and we can't trust serverless, it's like the engineering team's going to be like, okay, like, you know, what is the meme old man yelling at cloud? Like, it's mm. just at what point, it, it certainly doesn't at least seem like they're having a um, kind of like threat model in good faith, I think, so to speak. And modern security, in contrast, and kind of what um, most of the speakers in the series talk about is you have to foster that goodwill with the team. You have to keep an open mind. You have to be thinking about like, okay, what are they trying to accomplish and how can we do that in like a more resilient way that isn't going to, you know, be totally YOLO for the business, right? And in some cases, I think what a lot of people in InfoSec miss with risk management, it's not about eliminating the risk. That's not true in any other discipline you look with risk management. It's not about entirely eliminating the risk. It's about at least understanding like what risks are present. In a lot of cases, you accept the risk. That's definitely true in finance. When they talk about hedging, it's just the ability for the portfolio to survive downturns and to not be totally exposed to the entire downturn and to like reduce loss. It's not to eliminate loss. Well, I think, so I modern think security, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think you've hit on something interesting here, which I just wanted to just wanted to ask you about because, you know, the acceptance of any risk, the acceptance of cloud is something you can do. Like, you know, the people who resisted this were the curmudgeons, right? And it used to be such a core part of the InfoSec culture. Now I feel like, you know, there's those people, they're still around, right? You see them on Twitter complaining about stuff, right? Because they, they're the grumpy cats of the world, right? The grumpy cats who say no. Um, 
But I do feel like the the industry's kind of moved on and they're not the people who get listened to anymore. Do you think that's yes fair? And no. I think it's it's similar to what you see, like without getting too philosophical. I think it's similar to what you see elsewhere. No, they aren't tweeting. Um, you'll see them more on LinkedIn. But if you go to conferences, if you still go to RSA, I still encounter them. I encounter them in Q&As after my talks. Like they're still very much there. I hear horror stories from my engineering friends um, about security teams who are still doing this. And I think in some cases it might be cognitive dissonance where what people are saying or in thought leadering is very different from how they're actually acting in practice in their security programs. Um, but I think just because they aren't receiving or they aren't as noisy doesn't mean they don't exist. And I think that's, and I think we see this on the dev side too, like what development Twitter says or best practices are very different than how software development works in practice. Right. So I definitely caution whatever it, it seems like things are changing. Cause I, when it seems like things are getting better, don't worry, they aren't. I think they are. Like I, I, I can definitely say, like looking at some of the responses, security chaos engineering, like there are very much it, pretty much any sort of organization you look at, like old, young, like big, small across industries. Like there are people who are very much wanting to modernize and very much wanting to have like more outcome-driven practices. Um, I kind of have this theory that we're getting into like a very bifurcated market where you have that kind of group of people. And then you have basically these fat tails of like very modern and then people that are still just stuck in on-prem VPN sort of world and reaching those people, I feel like is much harder. Mm. So it sounds like surprise, surprise that modern security, uh, it sounds a lot like, you know, it involves embracing modern technology and modern development approaches and modern management approaches, right? Modern security is about securing those modern things. I mean, I'm shocked. Yeah, I think in some ways that's very true. I think it's also, um, you know, one of the things that we talk about in security chaos engineering is it's really grounded in the idea of resilience. And there's this key concept that's also coming out in the series. There's a huge difference between work as imagined and work as practice. And I think traditional security very much is this work as imagined, you know, the rational user that's going to be skeptical about every single link. But then work as practice, you have a, you know, communications person in the marketing team they have, you know, 75% of their emails are external and they have links and attachments. And so maybe they click one malicious link. That's one out of like a thousand that have been totally fine. That's perfectly rational for them to click. To click, And that's really work is practiced. And I think that's the key thing in modern security is that grounding in reality. Like how are people actually doing work? Like what are the things that actually make a difference for the business? Not this, you know, what's this kind of halcyon notion of, you know, this moral notion of security almost. Um, and I think that's, that's something what is like, it's a very pragmatic approach that I think is, it sounds really subtle in a way, and it sounds kind of obvious to your point, but I think is actually wildly different than what we've seen because the kind of metrics that matter as we see in the series is very different. It's not about, you know, how many people clicked on a phishing link or, you know, how many projects were, not that, people necessarily measure this, but like how many projects were like slowed down or how many vulnerabilities did you catch? It's now like, you know, how long was the duration of, you know, a denial of service? How quickly could we recover? Like what are, you know, how many people are complaining, you know, almost like a net promoter score about the security team. Like the metrics are very different because um, I think the goals are very different. So I, I don't want people to sleep on that it's a pretty transformative change, even though it sounds, I agree, kind of obvious. All right, Kelly Shortridge, thank you so much for joining us on Risky Business. It's been great to have you back on. Cheers. Thank you so much. 
That was Fastly's Kelly Shortridge there with a chat about what modern security actually looks like. And uh, Kelly is running an interview series for Fastly called The Department of No, uh, K-N-O-W, which features interviews with high-profile CISOs. And she's, co- you know, including the former CISO of, uh, of Twitter and, uh, you know, interesting people. So she's co-hosting that with another friend of the show, B Hughes. And uh, I've dropped a link to that series into this week's show notes. Big thanks to Fastly for being this week's sponsor. And don't forget, Fastly is the company that bought Signal Sciences. So you can get all that juicy Signal Science goodness through Fastly CDN these days. Uh, But yeah, that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back next week with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.